Pastor Xavier Reese says, the power has been turned on. Plug in. The Holy Spirit would be given to the individual in a new and different way. He shall be with you and he shall be in you. The Holy Spirit was to be constantly filling the individual. And the Holy Spirit would be the source of power to be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Don't leave without it. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Out of the heart will flow rivers of living waters. This is how Jesus described for us how the Holy Spirit is to be constantly filling those it dwells. And in a message from the Gospel of John entitled, Come Quench Your Thirst, Pastor Xavier draws some more simple truths of the living waters and how we ourselves can become the source of blessing that flows on to others. Our text is from the Gospel of John, so let's go right to the fountain. Here's Pastor Xavier. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, I've entitled the message, Come and Quench Your Thirst. And so we want to examine the proclamation of Jesus regarding the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is marked by three things. Let me read you the text, and I'll give you the three things. Chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The proclamation of Jesus regarding the promise of the Holy Spirit is marked by three things. Number one is the invitation, verse 37. Notice first that the invitation took place on the last day of the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven feasts given to Moses in the law. And on the eighth day, it was to be just a day of observation, a day of rest, a Sabbath. That's important. Now, Jesus stood to his feet on the last day of the feast, the eighth day. Everybody was just to think and to meditate, just to rest upon what had taken place. And Jesus stands to his feet and he cries out with great emotion. This is the word, with great proclamation and emotion. If anyone thirsts, the loud cry must have seemed so out of order on this eighth day. The loud cry must have seemed arrogant. The loud cry was in reality a proclamation of God's love, seeing man's desperate need, which he was in need of. Spiritual thirst. If anyone, no one is excluded, but let him come to me and drink. God is extending the invitation to you this morning. Notice he moves on to the appropriation. In verse 38 he who believes identifies any person who recognizes their spiritual thirst for God without limiting or qualifying their personal condition. I love that. It 
simply says, the condition is, he who believes. Now, if I would have made the gospel, I would say, well, those of you who really haven't had too many sins in your life. No. He says, he who believes. He who believes in me. In me. Identifies the person in whom they are putting their trust to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he can make us new creatures. But notice also that he who believes is in Christ, believes in me. This identifies the person's position, justified by faith, as Romans 5.1 says. We are in Christ. This speaks of our position. We are justified by what he has done, not what we have done, not what we're able to do, not what we will do, but what he has done, past tense. It speaks of abiding. It speaks of dependency. It speaks of safety. It speaks of reverence. It speaks of honor. It speaks of love. It speaks of wisdom in Christ. The whole option of my salvation is to see how close I can get to God and not how far out I can get away from God before I'm out. In Christ. It's a key phrase in the epistle to the Ephesians. In Christ, in the heavenlies. But notice also regarding the promise here in verse 38 that the promise is based on the scriptures. The reference to the scriptures is not to any specific quote, though people have attempted to find it. It's not to any specific quote. The reference is to the whole of scripture that was prophetic of the promise such as the one in Isaiah, where he says in Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a water garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isaiah 58, 11. And there are many promises like that throughout the Old Testament. The scriptures refer to the revelation of God's mind to the revelation of God himself and his will for man. Do you realize that if God did not reveal himself or things about himself, that there would be absolutely no way for us to know anything about God? And if God had not told us that he's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, that he's sovereign, that he's merciful, that he's graceful, that he's loving, that he's made a plan for redemption, we would never know it. We would never come to that understanding so there again we see God's grace and mercy to reveal himself to us through his word the scriptures are distinct from all other writings of man in that they are inspired which means that the men who spoke and wrote them did so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and not out of their own impulse thereby guaranteeing the accuracy of the record of the scriptures 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Inspired. We can trust that this is God's revealed word, not Peter's opinion, not Paul's speculation, not Moses' revelation because he lacked oxygen up there in Sinai, uh, but God's word here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this declares that the scriptures are infallible. They are inerrant as they are literally 
expired from God. That's what the word theopanusto means, expired from God, from his very mouth. Jesus said, not one yod or one tittle will fail from the law. Therefore, any teaching or practice that is not identified as coming from the scriptures in its proper context has no authority. If you and I cannot say like Peter, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in its context, then whatever you are practicing, whatever you believe, or whatever I am practicing, whatever I believe, if I do not have a scriptural basis in its context, then I have no right to teach it or practice it. It has no authority. Do you realize how many people are doing so many crazy things today that have no scriptural basis? And if they do point to the scriptures, it's completely out of context and it's just used as a text out of context, which is nothing but a pretext to do whatever you want to do. And so you have people barking in the spirit, laughing in the spirit, drunk in the spirit, acting like animals in the spirit, flying around the room. I'm just waiting for them to walk in the spirit. <laughs> now that's biblical. But oh, how the crowds flock. Now the problem is that a lot of this stuff is just a bunch of flesh. People that want to be heard, they want attention, and they're just out there doing their thing. But the other problem is that a lot of it is real. And if it's not the Spirit of God, then it's demonic. That's the bigger problem. So you make sure you mark everything by the Scriptures like a Berean. And you be ready to receive the Word of God, but you check those Scriptures to find out if these things are so that it's being taught. If not... You're a candidate for deception. And you know what's on, on the line? Your eternity. Are you willing to bargain with that? I'm not. I want to stay as close to the scriptures as I can. Notice thirdly here in verse 38. The promise was to impart power for spiritual life. The targeted area was the heart of man. The word for heart is not the usual one. It comes from the word which means hollow. It denotes the entire physical cavity, but most frequently it is used to denote the womb of a woman, the place where the fetus is conceived and nourished until birth. That's an interesting word that is being used here. Generic for men and women. Here in John, it is used in a metaphorical way to indicate the inmost or the innermost part of man, the soul, the heart as the seat of thought, feeling, and choice. The heart of man is said to be deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart of man is used symbolically of who a man really is and the whole man involving the intellect, the emotions, and the will. My body is just a channel, it's like a glove, like a pencil. My soul, my intellect, my emotion, and my wills, which manifest my thoughts, my expressions, my temper my moods, my emotions, and my spirit is the real me. I am a trinity, but I don't look at me as three individuals. I'm one. Here he's talking about the whole man, the real man. He's dealing with the heart. The heart of man is the basic problem, for it is in rebellion towards God and against God and self-serving as pointed out by the Sermon on the Mount. That's the problem, the heart of man. 
Now, constantly today through the sciences, we're being told that it's because the way your parents treated you and, you know, it's because you were fat when you were little and all the kids made fun of you and, you know, you had pimples and this and that and everything else. Well, all those factors play something on us, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is my heart. That's the problem. The heart of man must be replaced with a new heart through the new birth. And the love of God will be shed abroad in his heart by the Spirit of God, Romans 5, 5 says. It's our only hope. The purpose was in order that man be a channel for this living water to flow through. Mark it well. The word flow implies that a man is never to be thought of as a container of the Holy Spirit, for it would be limited to him alone. So don't think of yourself as a container. Yes, I'm filled with the Spirit. Praise God, that's my greatest privilege. No, it isn't. That's a selfish privilege if that's how you view the Holy Spirit. The word flow implies the promise was to be constantly flowing as a fresh source to others, thereby revealing man's greatest capacity and privilege is that of being a channel to reach others. <laughs> The faucet at home, you turn it on, it's great. It's a channel. It quenches whoever drinks from it. It's not an end in itself. The resource would be inexhaustible, mark it well. The metaphor is that of a river, which once again emphasizes that the source is not in and of the person. It is divine. The metaphor also implies an abundance of water by the use of the plural, rivers. The metaphor clearly teaches that the divine quality is the focus here. It has power to do what man desperately needs. It has the ability to cleanse and to refresh the life of man. It has the property of life implying the state of man in his natural order as dead spiritually even as Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, 13 through 15, that if she would draw from this water, she would never thirst again. She goes, oh, Lord, give me this water. They don't have to come here anymore. <laughs> She's thinking on the natural level. The appropriation is to those who believe the promise of Jesus. Personal. No one can do it for you if you're here this morning. Then thirdly, he does not leave us to our speculation, but he gives us the interpretation in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Notice first, the metaphor of rivers was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He gives it to us. We are not, I mean, if John wouldn't have given us this, do you realize how many different interpretations we would have gotten through pastors? And scholars, he gives it to us, straightforward. There's no argument. The Holy Spirit is all present in the world, for he is God. But he's not all indwelling for every person in the world. That's important. The Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals in the Old Testament for a time, like the prophets, kings, or priests, and then it left them. But secondly, notice that the recipients would be those believing in Jesus in the future. In the future, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit would be given to the individual in a new and different way. Peter says, this is that which was spoken to the prophet Joel. Joel 2, 
In Acts 2, he fulfills it. He points to it. New and different way. The Holy Spirit would indwell every believer through Jesus. Jesus said that in John 14, 16 through 17. He says, he shall be with you and he shall be in you. And then he gives them one more preposition in Acts 1.8. He shall be a P-U for power, for endowment, for the baptism. And the Holy Spirit would be the source of power to be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Terry, don't go anywhere. Don't leave without it. <laughs> you can't afford it. The Holy Spirit was to be constantly filling the individual on an ongoing basis. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, continue to be filled with the Spirit of God over and over and over again. And the Holy Spirit would be and essential for the last day survival kit. Jude 20 and 21 says, praying in the Holy Spirit. And essential for the last day survival kit. Now notice thirdly here in the interpretation, the promise of the Holy Spirit was prophetic. It was prophetic. The Holy Spirit at this point was not yet given. The period of time was a transitional one from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Remember, there had been 400 years of silence, and John broke that silence. I mean, God had not said a word. And all of a sudden, here comes John the Baptist, and here comes Jesus. It was a time of transition. The number eight, remember, seven days of the feast? On the eighth day, no water was brought forth, right? It was on that eighth day that he stood to his feet and cried out, If any man thirst... Number eight is a number of new beginnings. God was doing a new thing, distinct from the old covenant. The period of time was climactic in that it was witnessing the fulfillment of the coming Messiah to redeem the world. Where did he get his title, the Savior of the world? Not in Jerusalem, in Samaria. Who did Jesus use for an example of being loving, merciful, and kind? A Samaritan. <laughs> we use the term, are you a good Samaritan? <laughs> Yet the Samaritans were despised and hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds. The reason was because Jesus was not yet glorified, John tells us. That's why the Spirit had not been given as of yet. Jesus called himself the comforter to his disciples indirectly. He says, I will send you another comforter implying that he was the initial comforter. And then he says, I'll send you another. And the word another is allos. It means of a different kind, but the same source. He is the third person of the Trinity, but he's still God. John 14, 16 tells us that. And then Jesus said that if he did not go away, the Holy Spirit would not come and could not come. Therefore, it was absolutely essential that he go away, John 16, 7. Which is an interesting observation and brings us to a, an incredible conclusion. The fact that the Holy Spirit has come and that it fell upon the church in the day of Pentecost means that Jesus got to the Father. <laughs> he says, if I don't leave, he can't come. But if I go, he'll come. And when he comes, you'll know I'm there. <laughs> and when he's there, then you'll know I'm there. 
That's an interesting exchange. He would not speak of himself. Another interesting observation. When churches are glorifying the Holy Spirit more than Jesus, be real, real careful. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself. The Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. The Holy Spirit speaks of Jesus and tells us about the things that Jesus taught, brings it to our remembrance, guides us. He would be with the believer forever. What an incredible promise. And so the interpretation is prophetic of Jesus' condition on him being glorified. Incredible. This is on the Feast of Tabernacles, on the very last day when nobody is doing nothing. What a cry of love. Like the cry of, where art thou, Adam? Now, all this is fine and dandy. It's great information. Boy, we learn a lot about the context and the cultural background of feasts and all this and some spiritual truths, but, but we have to go to application, right? Otherwise, it does us no good. First of all, the invitation is open to you this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ. If anyone includes you, male, female, young, old, Great sinner, small sinner. Sins that have destroyed your life, sins that have destroyed lives of others. Sins that no one knows but you. It qualifies you. But also, if you recognize your thirst of God, then it is by the drawing of the Spirit of God that he brings that conviction, that illumination. And you need to be aware of that. But also, if you do, then you must exercise your own free will to drink. No one can do that for you. For that reason, Jesus always asked for a public confession of everyone. If you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father's name. But if you deny me, I will deny you. A public confession. But secondly, the appropriation must be made by you. Not only the acceptance of the invitation, but the appropriation. Your belief must be in the person of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Not just that he's a good teacher, not just that he's a moral uh, person, or not just that he's one of the avatars that just has uh, appeared upon the earth as one of the ascended masters. No, no, no. He's the Son of God. He's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God, man. And then on the basis of the interpretation, being prophetic, it is fulfilled in you. By receiving the person of Jesus. By quenching your spiritual thirst. And by acknowledging that Jesus has been glorified because the Holy Spirit is here in you. Man. The proclamation of Jesus regarding the promise of the Holy Spirit consists in these three things. Now what are you going to do about it? The ball's in your court. You've got to make a move if you do not know Jesus Christ. The invitation is to those who recognize their spiritual thirst for God. The appropriation is to those who believe in the promise of Jesus. And the interpretation is prophetic of Jesus being glorified. Won't you come and drink of the waters of life freely? Come. Pastor Xavier Reese posing the challenge for all those who are thirsty to come quench your thirst at the one and only place your soul can be truly satisfied. 
And with that, Pastor Xavier concludes this message entitled, Come Quench Your Thirst. Now you can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date under the radio tab at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And if what you've heard has posed a specific challenge in your own walk, maybe your own CD copy would be helpful for further personal study. You know, in fact, there's more content to the message than time allows us to present on the air. And then you'll also be able to listen and make notes at your own pace. Plus, having your own copy makes it convenient to pass along to others. Mention today's date or the title once again is Come Quench Your Thirst, and we'd be happy to pass one along to you for just $4. You can address your request to Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And when you contact us, it really helps us to know the call letters of the station you're listening to. So we appreciate your help very much. Jesus told us we really ought to remove the plank out of our own eye before we attempt removing the speck out of our brother's. We'll be back next time, and we'll be watching some Pharisees do just that. Hope you'll be along. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com (laughs) 